You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. In 2004, a good friend of mine asked our family to move up to Omaha, Nebraska to help him start a church. And we said no. I had never thought about working in a church. That just was not on my radar. I was really happy where I was, which is working right here at the University of Texas campus with crew. And, uh, but he went ahead and did anyway. In 2005, he planted the church and he just kept asking us to come and we kept saying no for the same reasons. And then in May of 2006, we had a sudden change of heart. Through a series of events, we started to feel like the Lord was indeed asking us to go. We had just had a baby We'd barely been in a house that long, but in a matter of a few months, we sold our house like on Craigslist, which back then was pretty cool. We did that. And we moved to Omaha, Nebraska, August of 2006 with our young family. We had absolutely no idea what we were getting into. Uh, But I will tell you, that was probably the most formative years of our lives. We loved it so much that we began to think that maybe God was asking us to start another church out of that church, and that just seemed crazy to me. It took almost a year for me to believe that God was really asking us to do that. But he was. By that time, Kendall had joined us in Omaha, and so he and I began to talk and pray about where the Lord was leading, and you know how that story ends, because here we are. That journey, uh, I could not have predicted any of it, but I would tell you right now that I would do it all over again, given the chance. And we kind of are in this preaching series that we're doing this spring and summer. The very first book that we preached through as a church in 2010 was the book of Philippians. The church in Philippi is this really healthy church. Paul has so much affection for them. They have so much joy through their partnership in the gospel. And so when we read that letter, we were like, yeah, this is the kind of church we wanna be. And it still is. And so as we pass the 10 year mark as a church, We're coming back to this book of Philippians now. We wanna revisit our DNA, those core values and core commitments that God called us to as a church. They haven't changed at all. But what happens in any organization and really in every human heart is this kind of drift from our values and commitments. And so my hope is that this series will kind of realign us, renew and strengthen us as a church. As Kendall said, around the world today, churches in our network are celebrating and highlighting a core commitment that we all share, and that is to plant church planting churches. And so I thought it would be fun and instructive for us to go back and see how the church in Philippi got started. It's in Acts 16, which you heard read, and it's just an amazing story. And so this sermon is going to be a little bit different. I just kind of want to go through the narrative pretty quickly, uh, bit by bit and just highlight a couple of things as we go. One is uh, the story in Acts 16 points to both theological and strategic reasons for church planting. It also points to the cost and some of the challenges you face in church planting. And so there's plenty of application here uh, for us corporately as a church, but also individually as followers of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's dive into Acts 16. You might wanna have it open because I'm gonna move through it pretty quick. 
Uh, This story picks up in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Acts gives us four of them. This is the second one. In this one, they're moving like north, northwest through what is modern day Turkey. On the front end of the trip, they're visiting churches that had been started in that area. And Luke tells us in verse five that these churches were strengthened in the faith and that they increased in numbers daily. I've assessed a decent number of church planners. They always have big, big dreams, just crazy stuff that I'm like, that's not gonna happen. But never has one of them, even the craziest one said, hey, our plan is to increase in numbers daily. Right, that is a, things are going pretty well here, I would say, in Greece. Or no, they're not in Greece yet, sorry, Turkey. The temptation for me, I mean, if I were them, I would be thinking, well, we got a lot going on here, a lot of new Christians. Uh, we've been through a lot, we've done a lot. Let's slow down. Let's just kind of build up what we've got going here. And that would make sense in a lot of situations. But that's not Paul's mindset. Now, I will give you, Paul, as an apostle, has a different situation and calling than us, but I think we can learn something from his mindset about God's heart and God's plan for the world. Look at verse six. They, Paul and his crew, went through the region of Phrygia. Phrygia. Brandon and I practiced this before, and he got it right. I did it wrong. And Galatia, which is central Turkey, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they come to Mysia, which is the western coast of Turkey, they attempted to go north into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. And so they went south through, through down to Troas. What I want you to see is they're just like bumping all around here. They're on the move. They're hitting roadblock after roadblock, but they don't stop. They keep going because that's the nature of the gospel. It's on the move. It goes forth and it goes through God's people. Paul writing to the church in Colossae, says this to them. He says, the gospel came to you and is bearing fruit in you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing just as you learned it from Epaphras. The gospel goes and it goes through people. Did you hear in that verse, the connection to creation? Bearing fruit, increasing. In Genesis one, God creates Adam and Eve and he tells them, to multiply and to fill the earth, subdue it. They're to take this garden of Eden and expand it over throughout the whole world so that the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. You see, the mission of God started before the fall and continues after it. In Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abraham to leave his country to a place that he would show him. And he makes him a promise. He says, I'm gonna bless you and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Adam and Eve and Abraham and all of us since then have failed to be what God has called us to be a light to the world. And so God sent his own son to be the light of the world. Jesus came, he's the new Adam. He brings a new creation and a new humanity. He's the true and better Abraham. Through him, the world truly will be blessed. In Matthew 28 and in Acts 1, Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples to the ends of the earth. See, he not only reconciles us to God, he restores us to our true purpose, to make disciples to the ends of the earth. This is the most important reason that we are highlighting church planning, that we're committed to church planning because God's committed to it. The plan of God is to fill the earth with his people through the ongoing expansion and renewal 
of his church. Acts 16 just gives us a little snapshot of the action. Pick up in verse nine. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Macedonia is modern day Greece. It's on the north coast of the Aegean Sea. So they're gonna have to cross water to get there. Now, it's a curious request, though. He says to come help, but the word is literally to bring aid. And Macedonia is not the kind of place that you would think of as needing help. Uh, they were financially and culturally rich. This was, a, this was like a cool place to be, like Austin. And so what does a Jewish Christian like Paul and his little crew have to offer Macedonia? Like, it's like, what do you get the person who has everything? Verse 10 tells us, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What do you get the place, the person who has everything? You get them the gospel. Greece had the best doctors, but every Greek was still going to die. They had the games to watch, the best in the world, but the excitement always died down. They had their plays and their dramas, but they had no story like the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They had the great philosophers, but they had no good news of forgiveness of sin. Not all the blue water in the Aegean Sea could wash their guilt away. You see, Greece had arrived culturally, spiritually, they were lost. And God's provision for Macedonia and for the world is his son, Jesus and the ongoing witness to him through local gospel-centered churches. And I think we've got to wrestle with this at a couple of levels. Individually, I think you just got to ask yourself, do you believe this? Like, do you believe that in Christ you have the thing that everyone around you needs the most? No matter how well put together they seem, they are in desperate need of Jesus and you have him. You have the message about him. You have his spirit animating your life. And do you believe that about yourself right now? Like you and I right now need the gospel as much as we ever have. And in my own life, I find that those things are connected. Like the more I am aware of my need for Jesus, the more aware I am of everyone's need for him. Corporately, I wonder, are we on the move Are we wrestling with where God is leading us or are we kind of cool with where we are? Caught up in our own little kingdoms. I just wonder. As I have been processing that question this week, uh, I feel both really encouraged and I feel pretty convicted. Here's what I feel encouraged about. I look back over the past decade and I can see, man, we have really given ourselves to the work of the kingdom outside our church. You've seen some of it. We have financially supported at least 15 church plants, but our investment goes way beyond that. And we've helped assess church planners. We've formally coached 25 church planners over the years. Through conferences and other venues, we have encouraged and equipped and trained hundreds of pastors over the years. Churches all over the world use some of our resources in their churches, especially in the early years to help build gospel centrality into their culture. We meet now regularly with pastors in our city to pray together and to collaborate about how we might advance the cause of the gospel in central Texas. 
we have made significant investments in the kingdom. Now, we don't talk about that much because even now as I say that, it feels like, hey, good job, Will, way to go, Providence. But I share that with you because I want you to be encouraged. God is using this little body, each part, as we do what we're also called to do, to plant churches in Austin and beyond. You're a part of that work, and I want you to celebrate in it. I feel convicted by a few things. Uh, one, I, I, um, I just know that I'm not pressing hard enough on this front. I know that. I can feel that. Mainly, though, um, this week I realized, man, I am not praying nearly enough for this. I don't know, you know when you come to the place where you think you've prayed enough, but I can tell you I'm not anywhere close to that place. It's weird. I, I remember a number of years ago when we were trying to figure out how are we going to plan a church, our first church, not this one, the Trinity. Um, I went to Dallas for like a week or so and I spent a, just a chunk of time seeking the Lord, praying, asking, how is this going to happen, Lord? And during one of those prayer times, he brought this, this person of mine, Mark Zeiler. I had never met Mark. I knew of him. We went to the same college in different times. I knew he lived in Austin. And I just clear as day felt the Lord saying, you should reach out to that guy. God talks like that sometimes. So I, that moment, figured out how to get a hold of Mark, called him, emailed him, I can't remember, made an appointment for the next week. We got together, we uh, just shared our stories, became friends. And over time, he did a church planning residency with us and we, 2017, sent out Mark and 50 of our people to plant Trinity Church. I was there this morning, I preached at Trinity this morning. They're there, they're doing great. Um, You would think that I would never stop doing that, right? Like, wow, that was awesome, that's a great story. So you did that the next year, right? took some time away, got away, sought the Lord, prayed. Nope, not that year, not any year since. You know why? The drift. It's real. And the drift in my soul is to start to just rely on my own strength, my resources, my connections, my net, whatever. It's not enough. It's never enough. And so, look, I just, I like have been repenting of that this week. I want to say I'm sorry to you guys for not leading in prayer on this front. And to invite you to join me in praying because it's not going to happen unless we seek the Lord and ask him to raise up church planters and opportunities and men and women and teams that we can send for his glory. All right, let's pick up in verse 13. They've come to Philippi and they've been there for some days. And on the Sabbath day, They went outside the gate to the riverside where they supposed there was a place of prayer and they sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Philippi is a place where people worshiped many gods. Uh, But it seems like there was no Jewish synagogue. You had to have 10 men to form a Jewish synagogue and all we see here is a group of women praying outside the city. These are God-fearing women, but they've not yet heard about Jesus. And so Paul sits down with them and just begins to share the gospel with them. Now, a little side note here. I've been kind of reading the whole missionary journey. In, in Acts 16 through 18, one of the themes that emerges is the key role that women play in the work of church planning in Paul's ministry. In Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, Luke specifically mentions that among those who believed and joined the work of church planting were, quote, a number of leading women and a number of women of high standing. In Corinth, we meet Aquila and Priscilla, a power couple. They're mentioned like in four different New Testament books. They were 
absolutely instrumental in the work of church planning in the first century. And they're always mentioned together. I like that. Aquila and Priscilla, both vital to the work. Together, multiplying their lives for the glory of God. And the first woman we meet on this journey is here in Philippi, verse 14. One, one of them who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And so Lydia is a pretty successful businesswoman. She's a church goer. Uh, if we knew Lydia, we would be like, man, Lydia's got it going on. She's got her life together. She's good people. And she is, but she's missing something. I'm not even sure she knows what it is until she starts to hear Paul talk. But as Paul talked, look what, look what happens in the end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This word, pay attention, means to bring in uh, or to hold on to or to cleave to. The image is like a ship coming to land, coming into safe harbor. And so in this moment, as Paul is explaining the good news of Jesus, the Lord is bringing the gospel to Lydia. And at the same time, he's opening her heart so that she can receive it, take hold of it personally. And I want you to notice that she immediately becomes part of the mission. Verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love this. The Lord opened her heart and immediately she opened her home. That's how it is in a new church. It's all hands on deck. Like the mission is so big and the resources are so few. It just creates all kinds of opportunities for all kinds of people to serve and to lead. New Christians, new residents, new generations. All the research shows it. Did you hear in Valentine's story? They've got unbelievers who've come to the church and they're like, great, you can usher and greet. We need that. The backstory on that is they used to meet at a different place. I've been to a service there and then uh, this new building came open in a different part of town. It was gonna change the demographic of their church and he wanted to do that. And uh, we, Providence, actually helped give them money to get that building. And it started to attract a lot more non-Christians. And I'm guessing those three guys are part of that crew. You're part of that story, isn't that great? But that's what happens. You know, in, a, in an established church, Paul would have had a place to stay, right? The old timers, everybody knows, you can stay there or there. They, they, they got a, a room for you, it's gonna be comfortable. Not here. Lydia's like, hey, I know I just came into this deal, but why don't you guys stay at my house? Why don't we make my house the beachhead for the church in Philippi? Because who else is gonna do it? There's nobody yet, but Lydia. I love it. Macedonia needed the gospel. But it wasn't just for religious people. You know, you look at Lydia and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, she was at a prayer meeting. Of course she's open to spiritual things. What about people who are like nowhere near a prayer meeting? Far from God. That's the story for some of you. That's how some of you feel maybe even right now. What about those people? Well, look who we meet next. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. I think it's safe to say this slave girl is far from God. She is possessed by spirits that oppose and hate God. And she's really annoying. She's just shouting the whole time. And Paul's like trying to be patient because he's an apostle. You got to do that. But eventually he's like, all right, enough. He 
confronts the spirit in the name of Jesus, tells him to come out, he comes out. And the implication is that this girl believes and joins the crew. But it's actually a really messy situation. Her owners, as you can imagine, are not happy about this at all because they're given to a different kind of spirit. They're given to the power of greed. Look what it says. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain, of profit, was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. You see, this isn't just business as usual. This is spiritual battle. The marketplace is their sanctuary. Gain is their God. And they will do whatever they can to worship that God. And so they bring all these trumped up charges against Paul and Silas. They stir up division and fear and strife among the people to protect their interests. That kind of stuff is happening all the time in our world today. Because listen, wherever the kingdom of God goes, it will always meet this kind of opposition because the gospel always confronts the idols of every culture. If you don't feel Jesus confronting you on stuff, I don't think you're talking to the real Jesus because we've all got stuff, allegiances that he wants to tear down. Paul and Silas are stripped and beaten and thrown into prison. Now, we usually think of situations like that. You know, we have that kind of trial or suffering. We're like, something's gone wrong. We need to change course here. But in Acts, this kind of trial and suffering actually usually means that God's about to take the gospel to new people and new places. Verse 19. No, we already did that. Verse 23. Luke turns our attention to the jailer. They throw them in jail and they ask the jailer to keep them safe. Now, this guy... It's likely a retired Roman soldier. He's a cultural insider. And I can tell you, he doesn't care at all about Paul's situation. They ask them, hey, just keep them safe in the jail. What he does though, is he takes them into the inner room, which is like the bottom of the trash can. It's the nastiest part of the jail. And he puts them in stocks, which can torture your body in all these really uncomfortable positions. It's a miserable place. It's a helpless situation. And it's like the perfect stage for God to act. In verse 25 through 29, here's what happens. Paul and Silas in the bottom of the trash can, in the stocks, they spend their first evening in jail, just like we all would, praying and singing hymns to God. Isn't that what you would do? I'd be praying, all right, get me out of here. But they're singing hymns. The other prisoners are listening. It's great. It's kumbaya. It's wonderful. About midnight, an earthquake happens and it shakes the foundation of the jail like such that all the shackles come off and the doors are flung open. They could have all just walked out if they wanted to and they didn't. When the jailer wakes up and he sees that the doors are flung open, he assumes that they've all escaped and so he decides he's gonna kill himself because this would have brought so much shame upon his life. He's in bondage to something else, reputation and honor and that sort of thing. And so as he's about to fall on his sword, Paul yells out, hey, whoa, 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 don't do that. We're all still here, man. And it shook the foundations of his life. He had never seen anything like that. He fell down before them in fear and trembling. And he says, guys, what do I have to do to be saved? And I'm like, that's easy. Just believe in Jesus and you will be saved. He came to faith in Christ and joined the work. Verse 33 says, he washed their wounds. That's pretty awesome. The very wounds that he was complicit in giving them, he washed them. 
and then they washed him. He was baptized along with his whole household. And then he brought him into his house for food and fellowship. They stayed up all night talking about the amazing grace of God because who else was going to do it? That's the church plant team in Philippi. An immigrant businesswoman, a former demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer. Like not what we would call an affinity group. You know, if you were looking for a GC, because you're like looking for people in your life stage and you showed up to their group, you'd, you'd go somewhere else. Except in Philippi, you can't. These are your people. It's a very diverse cast of characters. Economically, culturally, ethnically, spiritually. And Jesus saves them all. Because the gospel knows no boundaries. The church creates a new kind of fellowship. Not based on color, not based on culture or common interests, but on faith in Jesus and the unity we have in the spirit. It's beautiful. We've all experienced it, I think. People who you wouldn't normally cross paths with all of a sudden becoming brothers and sisters and friends and co-laborers in the gospel. Yesterday, I thought of a couple in our church, Brandon and Megan Willen, and they had a neighbor who was an older gentleman that came over to their house one day and began talking, and they became friends. They invited him in, into their gospel community, and he got to know these people. He's like, hey, these people aren't so bad, and like, where do these people go to church? And so he began to come to our church, and he used to sit on the front row and became a member in our church. He became one of us, brother, a friend, a co-laborer in the mission. We love him. He got reunited with someone in his family, and so he had to move to another state. But he still zooms in to their gospel community. He's probably watching now. Hey, you know who you are. Uh, Several people in that group have vacationed to go and visit him. They're friends. They're co-laborers. It's beautiful. And there's no world in which those people would have crossed paths and become that tight other than the church of Jesus Christ. That kind of hospitality that we see in the Willans and in Lydia and in the jailer is the foundation of all kingdom work. With new eyes, we're lifted up from our own little earthly kingdoms to see the people around us in a new way. And we invite them in. Into conversation, into our homes, into our gospel communities and church. We invite them to follow Jesus with us. Do you have a hospitable heart? Do you see the people that God's put in your life and are you inviting them in? Because who else is going to? It sounds simple, but this is how these three unlikely people started a church 2,000 years ago that we're still talking about. I don't know about you, but this story makes me want to plant a church like this week. I know that's not how it works, but at the very least... I do not want to waste any more time. I don't want to waste another week not praying, not wrestling with it, not planning for it. This is our DNA. From the garden to Jesus and until he comes again, we are part of filling the earth with the people of God, primarily by planting churches everywhere we go. But I'm just going to tell you it's not easy. It puts us on the front lines of spiritual battle. It confronts every idol we have of comfort and control and security. I mean, you gotta die to live this kind of life. 
That's what Jesus says. Whoever would come after me has to deny himself. You must die to yourself to follow him. So we die to the pursuit of all our earthly kingdoms and we lift our eyes and we seek first the kingdom of God. We make it our ambition to be about his mission. I did not mean to do that rhyme and I'm sorry for everybody that doesn't like cheese. But that's who we are now. It means we pray, we plan, we sacrifice for it. When I was at Trinity this morning, I saw some old faces and it just reminded me, man, when we got up in 2015 or 16 and asked our church to be a part of this new church with this guy they just met, I just was reminded that, man, there was a great cost to that. They had to move. Some of them moved across town to be a part of the church. They had to leave friendships and what was comfortable to them. For almost all of them, it meant a greater commitment of time and money and energy. It was a huge cost. Not just for them, for us. We let go of some good people, some great leaders. Took us a little while to recover from that, but it's worth it. It's worth the cost for the sake of the kingdom. By God's grace, that day is coming again for us. By God's grace, we're going to ask you to consider going, leaving. And it's going to be hard for all of us. And so what we've got to do now, before that day comes, is now we've got to start working this DNA of praying and going and sharing into the ribbons of our everyday life. We've got to be the kind of people who are on the move and we're inviting people in everywhere we go so that we're ready. Listen, I love this church. I love everything God's done in it. I love you guys. But I want you to know that our future is not just a bigger and better version of this. It's giving ourselves away for the cause of the gospel to help plant churches in Austin, Texas and all over the world. And only God can do it. Doesn't that sound fun? Let's ask him to do it. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.